So over the, the break, we ended up traveling. Our family traveled a, a fair amount more than we usually do, and I traveled quite a bit. And so I, I uh, got to worship at different churches, and uh, I came back with one con- conclusion, which is I love our church. <laughs> I, you know, I know there's no perfect churches, and this is not a perfect church, but man, I, I really love our church. Uh, we're going to be starting our study of the book of Matthew this morning, so I need you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1. In verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram was the father of Abinadab, Abinadab, father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon was the father of Boaz, by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed, by Ruth, Obed was the father of Jesse, and don't panic, I'm actually not going to read the entire genealogy to you, but I'm going to tell you, you should read it once in a while. Don't just jump over the genealogy, especially this one in in Matthew, every time that you see it. You know, I I read a biography one time about an African church leader who actually trusted Christ by reading the genealogy in Matthew. (laughs) How is that even possible? Well, the genealogy for him connected Jesus to reality. But it connected to Jesus to history, and it connected Jesus to a story uh, that was much longer and much bigger than just what he saw in the individual names. So there's, you know, there's a danger when you, you jump right in, right, to the, to the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1. It's not just because uh, genealogies are kind of dense and hard to read, and it's a little bit difficult to get going. It's because uh, Matthew is actually the middle of the story. Right? In a sense, there, there were 39 chapters that came up to this point. Matthew is the 40th, and then there are going to be 26 more chapters of the story that happens after this. Right? Matthew is the middle of the story of what God is doing. And you can get a little bit disoriented if you open up a story and begin to read right in the very middle. Right? Uh, this happens a lot in my household, my uh, certain people. Certain people will um, they'll read a book or they'll watch a movie and then they'll come and they'll say, "Hey, let me tell you about this incident in the story or this incident. Let me tell you how it ends." I go, no, "Wait, wait, don't, don't tell me." And they'll say, "Well, Dad, you're never going to watch that movie. You're never going to read that book." I say, "Well, I might, and I want to understand the whole thing, right? I want to see the whole development of the story, and I want to reach the conclusion uh, on my own, as I've seen everything develop." And so, what we're going to do this morning. As we begin our study of Matthew, we're not actually going to begin in Matthew. We are going to begin in the very beginning, and uh, I'm going to cover the entire Old Testament this morning. Right? We're going to synthesize the, the, uh, the whole story. So, uh, yeah, I would say again, buckle up, right? The, the story of the Bible is a story of promise. It's a story of, of divine promise and human failure. And in a sense, the question that's out there is, will the divine power and promise overcome human failure. Now, we know the end of the story, and we know that Jesus has overcome and will overcome, but what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to synthesize everything leading up to the book of Matthew and the story of Jesus in six chapters, so to speak, right? or six major events. The first of those is creation. So I want you to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 with me. Genesis chapter 1, and let's read verses 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. 
And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every moving thing that moves on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 is, in a sense, a, a purpose statement for the entire story of the Bible. Uh, and it actually answers the two great questions of life, which are, who am I and why am I here? Right, who am I and what's my purpose in life? In answer to this question, who am I, I, I am a, a uniquely made creature in the image of God, and so are you. Of all of the creatures that God made, that fly in the sky or swim in the sea or move on the earth, there's just one man, male and female, made in his image. That's who we are. That's the most significant thing about us, made in the image of God. And what does that mean? Well, it means that we can have an intimate and personal relationship with God because God is a person and we are personal. Among all the creatures that God made, we're the only ones who can have a personal relationship with God because we're made in his image. We can also reflect the character or the personality of God. God is a moral being and we are moral beings. God is moral and we make moral choices. There is a level of self-determination on the moral level that we have because we're made in the image of God. Let me illustrate. Uh, You may have a dog and your dog jumps the fence and he goes and he visits all of the other cute dogs in the neighborhood, right? And when he comes back, you might say, bad dog, right? But is he really a bad dog? No, not really. He's just doing what dogs do. Right? The reason you feel like he's bad is because he jumped the fence, but all of that kind of crazy behavior that he did while he's out there, well, is it bad? Well, it's just, it's just instinct. That's what dogs do. Now, if a person did that and jumped the fence and went and visited all around the neighborhood, you'd say bad person and you'd be right, right? because we're morally responsible. See, that helps us understand why God did this strange thing, putting a tree in the middle of the garden, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then said to Adam and Eve, don't eat it. Why would he do that? Because Adam and Eve, in a sense, needed a test. They needed to make a choice. See, God is, God is sovereign, capital S. He is the ruler over, over all things. But a significant part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that you are a small s sovereign. That is, you make real choices with real consequences. That's being made in the image of God, right? That's, that's who we are. Now, why are we here? What's our purpose? Verse 28, he says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. Our purpose is to rule and to reign as we reflect the character of God throughout the face of the earth. Or, as the psalmist summarized it, Psalm chapter 8, when I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right, the psalmist says, when, when I see how incredibly great you are in the vastness of all of creation, I see the moon and the stars and the sun. Think, why do you even pay attention to us? We seem so small. And he goes on to say, yet you have made him, that is man, a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule 
Over the works of your hands, you have put all things under his feet. What's our purpose? Our purpose is to live in intimate relationship with God and with one another. And then to reflect his character throughout the earth and to establish his authority or his kingdom everywhere on the face of the earth. Right? That's, that's God's design. That his kingdom, his authority, his reputation, his personality, who he is, would be established across the face of the entire earth and that it would be done so by us. And so God created and then God commissioned and God looked at at all that he had made and he said, what? This is really very good. In fact, this is exactly what I had in mind. This is paradise. But it didn't last very long, did it? Right? Turn to Genesis chapter 3. And verse 1. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Uh, this is, uh, in theological circles, is called the fall um, the fall sounds so passive, right? Adam and Eve fell into sin. Oops, right? But that's not what's actually happening. What's happening is an outright rebellion. It's an intentional revolt against God and against God's authority and against God's plan and his intention for his creatures made in his image. What happened? Well, God's adversary slithered into the garden, right? In the form of a certain Satan, the adversary came into the garden and his intention was to usurp the authority and the control over God. And so what he did was he tried to gather followers for himself. Remember, uh, Satan, we, we don't know a lot about him, but we know this. He was created by God. He was created as the most beautiful angel that God had made. The most beautiful, the most intelligent, the most powerful. And apparently a switch went off in his heart and he decided, you know, I don't need to live under the authority of God. I can be God. I should be God. And so he gathered some of the angels and they came with him in rebellion against God. And when God created, he decided that he would usurp God's authority over the earth and he went to recruit image bearers, men and women, to follow after him and set up a counterfeit kingdom against God's kingdom and against God's authority and against God's goodness in the world. He came to Adam and Eve and he said, follow me. You can live independently from God, and you can make life work. In fact, life will be better if you live independently from God. You know, that's actually the temptation that each of us faces every day, isn't it? Will will we let God be God and God reign as king? Will we live gladly under his authority and his goodness and kindness? Will we say to ourselves, yeah, the best place for me to be is in the kingdom of God and under the authority of God? Or will we say, you know... I don't need God as king. I can be king. My life will be better if I'm in authority over my own life. And we face that choice every day. We face that choice sometimes moment by moment. Will God be in authority? Will God be king? Or will we be king of ourselves? 
And I learned an interesting fact from uh, Matt Morton this week. Apparently, uh, according to a recent count, there were 85,000 Elvis impersonators in the world. And growing, the number is growing. Right? 85,000 Elvis impersonators. And at the rate of growth, according to an article by CNN, they said at the rate of growth, by the year 2040, a third of the world will be Elvis impersonators. <laughs> and you say to yourself, <laughs> what's the point of that? Uh, there's a moral to the story. Moral story is this. Everybody wants to be king, right? <laughs> Everybody wants to be the king. So this was Independence Day for Adam and Eve. Independence Day for mankind. Problem was, it, it turned out to be enslavement. Because man can't live without God. Because we were made by God and made in the image of God. We're, we're contingent beings, the theologians say. We're dependent beings, We need something that is outside of ourselves, and that is God. Man cannot live without God. To live without God is to experience death. And that's what Adam and Eve experienced. They experienced immediately the death of paradise, right? Paradise was gone. The the creation no longer cooperated with them. Instead, it was thorns and thistles. It was frustrating. They experienced the death of paradise, They experienced the death of their bodies. Their bodies begin to degenerate and decay. No longer continuously regenerated and healthy. They experienced the death of relationships. Immediately, this uh, oneness between Adam and Eve began to fracture and they were suspicious of one another, not trusting of one another. They became self-protective and were accusing one another of wrongdoing. And most importantly, it was a a death of relationship with God. They were removed out of the garden. Formerly, they walked with God in the cool of the day. They could hear the voice of God, and they could understand what God had in store for them each day, so they could go out and they could rule and reign on his behalf. They could reflect his character. But now, they're outside of the garden. They're not walking with God daily. There was a, a death or a separation, a fracture in that relationship. And as you read the story, if you were... Reading it for the first time, you might ask yourself, um, what's God going to do with this now? Or is he just going to say, enough is enough, scrap the whole program, let me get rid of Adam and Eve, and maybe even the entire earth, and I'll just start over. Or maybe I I see where this is going, and I'm just going to scrap everything and not start again at all. But God makes a prediction that's going to play out throughout the rest of the biblical narrative. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says to the serpent, He says, I will put enmity or animosity, there will be warfare between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He says, between your kingdom and my kingdom, represented by image bearers who follow me, there's going to be warfare and the image bearers will win. On my behalf, a descendant who comes from the woman, a seed, one who bears the image and likeness of God will defeat your kingdom, Satan, and destroy it forever and ever and ever. And as you continue to read the narrative, you say to yourself, I'm glad God made that prediction because I don't see how it's possibly going to happen. Because humanity just gets worse and worse and worse, right? So bad, in fact, that God says, I'm just going to wipe all of them out with a flood and I'll start over with Noah and his family. And so he does so. He wipes everyone out except Noah, Noah's sons and their wives, and he starts over. But then Noah's family also quickly turns to degenerate and part of his family moves to the east, which in the Old Testament narrative is to move away from God, 
right? They move away from God. They go to the land of Shinar and they say, you know what? We don't want to rule and reign on behalf of God. We don't want to represent God in his character. Instead, what we want to do is we want to make a name for ourselves, right? It's back to the garden temptation, And what we're going to do is we're going to make a tower that will reach up into the heavens. That is, we'll make a tower that's so high that if God decides to flood the earth again, it won't touch us, right? We don't trust God that he says he's not going to flood the earth. We don't trust him. So we'll build a tower that reaches to the heaven and we will make a name and a reputation for ourselves. And so what does God do? He comes down and he mixes up all of their languages and confuses them so that mankind can't unite in rebellion against him and further destroy themselves. And so we end this narrative of the Tower of Babel and we wonder, well, God, then what will you do? How will you restore your kingdom and your authority and your goodness through mankind over the face of the earth when all mankind seems to be in rebellion against you? Turn to chapter 12, the book of Genesis. God begins to reveal his plan for restoration through a promise that he gives to Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. That is, leave the east, where Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. Leave that place and come toward me. Come to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice that there are three promises that are made to Abraham. He's going to receive land, seed, and a blessing. That is, Abraham, there will be a place on earth from which I will begin to extend my kingdom. And it will come from your seed or your family. That is, Abraham, you will have descendants. And Abraham, I will bless you physically, materially, Socially, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, Abraham, you will receive my best. And from you, most importantly, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Right, Abraham, this blessing won't just be for you. This will be through you for all peoples. And in you, all of the nations will be blessed through your descendants or through your seed. Later, the promise was ratified and it became what we describe as a grant covenant. Right? It's a promise here in chapter 12. It'll be ratified as a grant covenant with Abraham. It's been described as the backbone of the Bible. Right? A grant covenant means that God takes upon himself as the sovereign, as the king, all of the obligations to fulfill the promises that he has made. He says, I will do this thing. Abraham, I will bless you. I will give you land. I will give you seed. I will give you blessing. I will bless all of the nations through you. Abraham, I will do this thing. It's a grant. It's a gift. And then we're left to wonder, well, how, God, how will God actually execute this covenant that will eventually bless all of the peoples through the earth? Because if you read the narrative, it doesn't happen during Abraham's day. And Abraham's family doesn't immediately explode and expand and go throughout all of the earth. It doesn't happen in Isaac's day. And then Isaac has a son, Jacob, and God chooses Jacob to be the, the family line through whom this blessing is going to come. And we read the story of Jacob and we say, God, are you sure? Are you sure you really wanted to pick Jacob? I mean, I know you didn't have a great choice between Jacob and Esau, but really, why Jacob? But I mean, he, he lies and he cheats and he steals against his brother and against his father. He steals what God has already declared is his by promise. 
He's just a horrible character. And then he, he grows up and he becomes a terrible husband and father, right? I mean, he's just, he's a mess. He shows favorites between his multiple wives, right? Bad idea, first of all, multiple wives. But then he shows favorites between his children and his sons. He's got 12 of them. They're always in conflict and they're fighting with one another. They're fighting uh, sometimes even with the people around them. There's one incident where Simeon and Levi kill uh, many of the people in the surrounding area. And when they come home, Jacob says, you know, you have made me odious in the sight of the people of this land. In other words, sons, our family is not a blessing to these people. Our family is a curse to these people. Jealousy becomes so great within the family. You know the story, they, they sell Joseph as a slave. He goes down to Egypt and Joseph eventually uh, understands God's perspective on being rejected by his family and sold into Egypt. He says, as when his brothers eventually come to him, he says, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Or to rescue this family, and, and really not just to rescue the family from famine. I would argue the rescuing the family from itself. Because when it was in the promised land, it was becoming more and more influenced by the peoples that lived in the land. It was, the, it, I mean, you want to describe a dysfunctional family. <laughs> you may think your family's messed up. I don't know, if you're a parent and you ever begin to read through Genesis, you're starting to read through this and you think, man, I better not let my kids read this, right? This, this is horrible, sketchy stuff. This is a dysfunctional family. And so what God did is he rescued that family from itself, putting it in Egypt where the Egyptians would not intermingle because they would have no relationships with shepherds. And so the family was allowed to grow, in a sense, in isolation. And it grew and it grew and it grew to the point that the family now numbered two million people. A threat to the Egyptians, so they enslaved the family. And God sent a deliverer, Moses. God sent Moses to rescue them. And by signs and wonders, he brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and into the land of Sinai, to Mount Sinai. And he gave them another covenant. We call it the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. And if you'll notice, I've given you some dates so you can begin to learn the chronology of this story. The covenant with Abraham was about 2000 B.C. The covenant through Moses with Israel was about 1500 B.C. It was 1446. The next chapter we're going to describe will be about 1,000 and then the fourth about 500. These major events happen about every 500 years in the history of Israel. The Mosaic Covenant was given about 1500 B.C. And in it, God gives the people a vision for why he has chosen them. Chapter 19, verse 6. He says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He says, Israel... Out of all of the families on the face of the earth, out of all the nations on the face of the earth, I have chosen you. And the reason that I've chosen you is that your entire nation would be a kingdom of priests. And what's the role of a priest? Well, the priest, in a sense, stands between man and God and mediates the blessings of God to mankind. He says, Israel, I've chosen you so that you would be that nation that would mediate my blessings to all of mankind. And he summarized or synthesized, in a sense, the moral obligations of the law in Ten Commandments. And then he summarized or synthesized the structure of this relationship in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Let's read in chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. God says, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, Then the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you 
and overtake you. And God says to his people, if you obey, then you will be blessed. And what does it mean to be blessed? It means to receive all of the riches that God has for you. Materially, physically, emotionally, relationally, socially, spiritually. He says, if you obey, then you know what? The land is going to yield its crops for you. And your animals will bear offspring and they'll be healthy. And your children will be healthy and your families will grow and you will have protection from all of your enemies and you will have good relationships within your nation and you will have, most importantly, a clear conscience before me and a deep relationship with me. You will be blessed. On the other hand, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The curse is the opposite of, the, of a blessing. The curse is the misery of following Adam and Eve and saying, no, I'll be my own king. Right? The curse is, is the misery of living outside of the authority and the goodness and the kindness of God. And notice this is entirely conditional upon Israel. If you obey, then you experience blessing. If you disobey, then you experience cursing. So let me clarify really quickly. The law is not a means of salvation for the Jew or for anyone else. Right? The law was never given for salvation. Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that Abraham's the prototype, right? He, he's not just the founder of a family, but he's the founder of faith. And Abraham says, how did Abraham enter into right relationship with God? How was he justified or how did he experience salvation in that respect? Paul says, by faith. By by faith alone in the promises that God had spoken. Not by his works. In fact, the law would not come in until over 400 years later after Abraham was declared righteous just through his faith. It wasn't through circumcision, right? Obeying a particular commandment that God had given. It was just by grace through faith. Salvation is always by grace through faith. Always. For all people for all time. So why did God give his people the law? Well, Paul also tells us in Galatians... That the law was added alongside. It didn't take the place of the Abrahamic covenant. But what it did is it told each generation. If your generation wants to enjoy these promised blessings, this is how your generation has to live. This is how you have to treat one another. This is how you have to treat the nations around you. This is how you have to respond to God. This is how you get back in right relationship with God when you sin. In other words... These are the the steps of obedience for your generation to enjoy the blessings of God in your generation. The problem was this. God gave them a covenant, but in the covenant, there's no power. It's It's just a written set of rules and regulations. There's nothing that can actually reach in through the law and change their hearts to long to obey God, to desire to obey God, to have strength to obey God. There's no sense of empowerment. In other words, if I can say it differently, it's not that the law was too difficult to obey. In fact, in Deuteronomy 30, God says to his people, look, the law is not too difficult. It's not like it's way up in heaven and you have to say, who can we send to heaven to bring it down to us? It's not across the sea that you have to say, send somebody across the sea to bring it back to it. He says, the law is right in front of you. You can do it. The problem is that you won't do it. Because your heart is still dark. And there was nothing in the law to change the human heart. And so what we actually see as we continue to read the biblical narrative is that um, 
Israel lived most of its history uh, under the cursings. Outside of the blessing of God, in the misery of living separately from God. In fact, the next era in their history is the era of the judges. And the theme that ties several hundred years together in their history is this. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so they went through this cycle of disobedience and discipline, repentance, and God would restore them. And it just happened over and over and over again because nothing changed inside of their hearts. So when they got to the end of this cycle of disobedience, they determined in their minds, they said, you know what would stop this cycle is if we just had a king. If we had a king, like all the other nations, then we would live in blessing. And so they asked God for a king. And God spoke to Samuel and he said, Samuel, you need to understand that they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. What's really happening in their hearts is they don't want me as king. And so I'm going to give him a king. I'm going to give him their kind of king. And so he gave him a king who was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He was very handsome. He was very strong. He was a military leader and he was an absolute failure. His name was Saul. His name was Saul. And so God stepped in after Saul and they had experienced what they thought they wanted. And he said, I'm going to give you another king. He's going to be a king who's after my heart. His name is David. This is the Davidic covenant. Second Samuel chapter seven. Verse 8, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you, David, from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. So Adam and Eve chose rebellion against God, and God made a prediction. He said this, image bearers will win. Right? There's going to become a seed or descendant from woman who will destroy the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And as a result, God's kingdom will spread across the face of the whole earth. And we're left to wonder, well, who will that descendant be? And then God tells us, well, let me narrow your focus. It will be one who comes from the family of Abraham. And now God narrows our focus even further. He says, it will be one who comes from the family of David. Not just any person and not just any Jew, but a specific one from the tribe of Judah and from the family of David. And I'm going to make David some promises as well. And again, this is a grant covenant. He says this, three things. You're going to have a house, a kingdom, and a throne. That is, David, you will have a house. You're going to have descendants. And you're going to have a kingdom. That is, you're going to have a realm over which to rule. And you're going to have a throne or you're going to have authority. And that authority will ultimately be established forever. And from that throne, you will rule not just over Israel, but ultimately it will be my rule through Israel over all nations, and I will give my blessing. Well, it didn't happen in the lifetime of David, did it? Well, David was, was far from a perfect king. He was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't perfect. He had some, some major failures. Specifically, when he took another man's wife and then he killed that man, had that man put to death. When he ordered the census to establish his own military strength and a plague broke out and Tens of thousands of people of his own nation were destroyed. He wasn't perfect, but he was a man after God's own heart. And then he established his son Solomon after him. And Solomon, the the kingdom didn't didn't get established completely through Solomon, right? Because Solomon was wise, at least in his mind, but in his heart, he chased after 
the world, really. Right? Very, very materialistic man. He disobeyed the three major commandments for kings of Israel. Uh, don't multiply uh, horses and chariots. That is military strength. Don't trust in your military strength. Don't multiply gold and silver. That is, don't trust in your wealth to deliver you. Don't multiply uh, foreign wives. That is, don't create military alliances with the nations around you. Well, Solomon broke all three of those, and the result was he brought all of these wives into his presence, and they pulled his heart away after foreign gods. Solomon, like Jacob, was, he was a terrible husband. He was a terrible father, right? I mean, how can you be a great husband to 300 wives, right? I mean, if you, even one of them wants quality time. You, you know, he's a terrible husband. His son, Rehoboam, was a foolish young man, In his reign, the kingdom split and became two separate kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel in the north wandered far away from God. They set up idolatrous centers in the north and the south of their area. And if you read the history of the northern kingdom, there's not one single good king, not one. In the south, there were a few good kings. There would be periods of revival, but largely they began to follow after the course of the northern kingdom. And eventually the northern kingdom was taken into exile, 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was taken into exile by the Babylonians. Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. The people are living outside of the promised land. They have no Davidic ruler. They're living uh, as foreigners in in a strange and foreign land. And again, we're left to wonder, well, God, how are you going to do this? How are you going to fulfill your promise to establish your kingdom and goodness across the face of the earth through this family when they're living in exile as a result of their own sin? I want you to turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah, chapter 31. This next chapter I describe as promise 2.0. God reiterates his promises to his people in the midst of their discipline for their sin. Knowing all the sins that they had committed, God reiterates his promises because his promises were in the form of a grant covenant. God took upon himself the duty to fulfill these things even to a rebellious people. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 35 Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, Then I will also cast off all of the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Do you see what he's saying in these verses? He's not pretending that he doesn't know what they did. He's not pretending that it didn't happen. What he's saying is, I'm faithful even though you've been faithless. He says, in fact, I'm so faithful. If you look up at the moon and the stars, I want you to imagine. The only way that I would rescind my promises is if this order dissolves. There's no more sun, moon, or stars. There's no more night and day. All of that is gone. When when that's gone, then you can say, yeah, God won't be faithful any longer. But this morning, you and I woke up and we saw, well, we saw clouds. But we know there's sun, and we know that there will be moon and stars, and we know that there was morning and there will be evening because God is faithful 
to the physical universe. God is faithful to his promises that he makes to his people. And then he goes on, he said, well, if you can actually reach up and search out the depths of heavens and measure it or go down to the depths of the sea and measure that, then I'll, then I'll rescind my promises. But you can't do that. And you never will be able to do that. And I never will be unfaithful to my promises. And so he issues them what's described as a new covenant, okay? a better covenant. Because remember, in the Mosaic covenant, there was no empowerment. There's a list of rules and regulations. And if you do these things, you'll be blessed. And if you disobey them, you'll be cursed. But the problem is your heart hasn't been changed to long to, to obey me and to put me as king in your lives. There's no power. And so I'm going to move that covenant out and I'm going to give you a new and a better covenant. Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What's that? That's the Mosaic covenant. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Remember, what's the problem? The problem is a heart that doesn't long for God. And so in the new covenant, God says, I'll provide you with the means. I will provide you with the ability. I will remove the heart of stone out of your flesh. And I will put within you a heart that longs for me. I'm going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to give you a better covenant. So that you can receive the promises that I have given. Now who will be that that seed? Who will be that descendant who will lead us to receive the new covenant and the blessings involved and establish the kingdom of God over the face of all of the earth? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch, David, to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. Verse 20. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not appear at their appointed time, Then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. Remember, two grant covenants, Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And what does he say? That if you can remove the fixed order of, of day and night and sun and moon and stars, then I'll break my covenant. It's not going to happen. I made a promise to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing, and through that blessing, you will become a blessing to all of the nations. And I told you that that leader who would bring you into that place of blessing would be from the family of David himself. That was a grant covenant, a throne, right? A kingdom, a family. He will have all of these things because I've made all of these promises. And God reiterates those promises. Note this. He reiterates those promises when Israel is in the midst of being disciplined for their sin. God says, you have been unfaithful, but I will be faithful. And so God takes them and he restores them. There's a return. Nation comes back into the promised land. Cyrus, pagan Persian king, orders that 
Israel can return back to the land. And they return back to the land and they rebuild the temple. And then under Artaxerxes, they're able to come back and they rebuild the walls around the city. But they still live as an oppressed people under foreign powers. There's no Davidic king on the throne. And they're waiting and they're waiting and God sends a prophet, the final prophet. His name is Malachi. And he says to the people, I am going to, uh, God is declaring to you, I'm going to send you a prophet in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And this prophet will prepare your hearts to receive the king and to receive the new covenant and to receive this new heart through which you can enjoy all of the blessings of God. Wait for him. And so they waited and they waited and they waited 400 years. Right? 400 years of silence. No prophets came. They're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting for God to send that one. And now we're ready for the book of Matthew. Okay, turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Wow, do you see it? One verse that just synthesized the entire Old Testament that we've been talking about for the last 30 minutes. Okay? Who is Jesus? One verse summarizes the entire story up until this point. This is the son of promise. This is the one. This is the one who is inheriting the promises that were made to Abraham. This is the one that's inheriting the promises that were made to David. Who is he? Who is he? Two things I want you to note. First is this. His name is Jesus. And in the Old Testament, in all of biblical literature really, names are significant. Names carry great meaning. Jesus was named by God because his name carries meaning. And his name means this. The Lord, that is Yahweh, saves. Yeshua. Yahweh saves. Saves us from what? Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. She, that is Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God has not forgotten us. God is going to save us. Will save us from what? Yeshua, God, in flesh, will save us from our sins. We know the end of the story, right? We know where this has gone, and we've read the story many times. And we understand. But if you were living in that day when Jesus arrived and you heard these prophecies, he will save us from our sins, you would have to wonder to yourself, well, he's a king, I understand, but, but how will he save us from our sins? What Matthew will describe for us is that Jesus is no ordinary man. Yes, he's a man. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He came from a woman. He came from, from this person. He's, a, he's, a, he's fully man, but he's also God because it was the Holy Spirit that overshadowed her. And so he won't be like your typical king. He'll be God-man. And he will remove this barrier to blessing, which is sin. 
Right? God can't pour out the riches of his, of his blessing upon all of the earth while there is this cloud or this veil of sin and death. And so somehow this king is going to rule and reign in such a way that he removes first the debt of sin. And Matthew's going to help us understand how all of that happens. That the God-man king removes the debt of sin. Second thing I want you to note, notice is his role is Christ. Right? He's Jesus the Christ. Christ is not his last name. Right? And call a roll and say, Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ here. That's not, right? If anything, his last name would have been something like Bar-Joseph, right? Jesus, son of Joseph. Christ is a title. The Hebrew word is Messiah or Mashiach. It means anointed one. He's anointed for something very specific. That is, he is anointed to be the heir or the son of Abraham, to receive the promises given to Abraham, the promises given to David. The angel describes this in Luke chapter 1. He says, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. See, there it is again. Throne, house, kingdom. In fact, when you read the book of Matthew, probably the most important word in the book of Matthew is king. King occurs 22 times. Kingdom occurs 55 times. No other author author uses this concept of king and kingdom as much as Matthew. It's the most important idea that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. And the fundamental application that we're going to be driving home throughout the semester is this. Is Jesus your king? Jesus is going to present himself clearly as the king. Not just of Israel, but of all nations. As the king of your life. And the question that I want us to consider beginning this morning and throughout the semester is simply this. Do we live comfortably under the kingship of Jesus? Do we welcome him as king? Do we say, yes, you, you are Lord. You are sovereign. You are master. Or does our heart give its allegiance to other kings? Or do we say, yes, you're a king, but I really want you to serve as an advisor not as sovereign. I want you to begin to examine the vocabulary you use, maybe not even in conversations, but at least in your own heart and your mind. When you speak of your life, do you speak of your life? My life. My career, my job. My house, my car, my retirement account, even my family, my children. See, if Jesus is is king and he's sovereign, then all of those things are just stewardships from him, right? He's he's the sovereign, he's the king, he's the owner. And he's going to be continuously challenging our hearts not to give our hearts to other allegiances or to think that we are best uh, in charge of our own lives, that we can find life and make meaning apart from him. That's the original temptation that Adam and Eve gave into in the garden and that's what Jesus came to rescue us from. The foolishness of enslavement to ourselves. And so I want to encourage you as we close, I'm going to give you just a few moments to let God's spirit begin uh, to do its work. And maybe God's spirit needs to speak to you this morning and say, you know, there are some other allegiances, some things that you love more than me. Maybe a ruler that you've placed above me. Maybe it's yourself. And let's let God's spirit, let's let him him speak to our hearts and begin to, to reveal those things because, you know, there's not life in those things. The reason that Jesus tells us to follow him is because that's where life actually is found. It's for our good. So let's take a few moments silently before the Lord and then I'll close this in prayer.
Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that it is only your spirit that can reveal uh, things that get hidden deep within our hearts. Um, The foolish allegiances, the the, the foolish loves that are less than you. uh, Our pride and our desire for independence. Where we let you give advice, but don't allow you as the sovereign to... uh, make the choices and make the decisions for us. I pray, Father, that we would trust you, that we would trust your son, that we would relinquish everything, that we would hold all of life with open hands, no matter what it is that you call us to do this semester, no matter what choices you call us to make, that we would trust you in great faith and obedience and find life in you, only in you. In Jesus' name we pray. God bless you. Have a great week, and I want to continue to uh, encourage you to continue maybe read through the whole book of Matthew this week, and we'll get started at the beginning. God bless you.